0: Hi, we want to welcome everyone back to the continuation of our study of the book of James this semester. We have heard it called the New Testament version of the book of Proverbs. Last week we heard it called a loving punch in the gut, and so one thing is true, we have all been challenged this semester, have we not? I would add that this book of James could also be considered his unique version of a family meeting. Now, back in the day, when our children were small, we had lots of those, and maybe some of you can can relate to that. Before the sitter would come, we'd have a family meeting to discuss how the behaviors were going to look when mom and dad left the house. Or maybe before a school year would start, we'd gather on the patio and set new goals for their academic year and successes. If a bad report came in or someone had shown disrespect, it was time to realign and have another family meeting, you know, and come up with something new and continue on with fresh perspective. So we want to consider, I want to ask you to consider this book, the book of James, as that sort of thing, as a family gathering. So we have the body of Christ, all of us, sitting together, and Dad, in this case James, is going to share from his heart because he's been noticing some things that are not quite right. He's been hearing some things that are displeasing to him. And so he reminds his children again that they're very special to him. They're special members of a special family, and they have some standards that have been set by a special God. In this passage, James 4, 11 through 17, James teaches many things, and we're going to group them, if you will, into three key ideas. The first of which is that our words are very powerful. We must accurately understand, the second one is that we must accurately understand what it means to judge and then do so correctly. And the third key idea is that God's plans are in fact the best. So let's join in this family meeting and lean in. Amen. Everybody leaning in. We heard about that this morning earlier in our leaders gathering. In James 4:11, he says, "Do not speak evil of one another, brethren." Listen. In this family, we simply don't speak evil of one another. This means we don't determine someone's guilt, we don't condemn someone. To hell, we don't slander, we don't make false judgments, we don't misrepresent someone's motives or ruin their reputation. In this family, we don't accuse one another, we don't bring charges against one another based on partial information. Not in this family. Rather, we're going to do what Peter suggests in 1 Peter 2 1. We're going to get rid of all evil behavior and be done with deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind. This is a big deal because our words are very powerful. And while most, if not all of us, would never dream of harming someone physically, the Bible actually tells us that speaking slanderously about someone is likened to doing just that. Take a look at Proverbs 25, verse 18. Telling lies about others is as harmful as hitting them with an axe, wounding them with a sword, or shooting them with a sharp arrow. Let's be done with every form of evil speaking. Amen? Amen? Amen. Mm -hmm. And being members of God's family means that we don't just refrain from speaking evil, but in fact, we speak well of one another. We choose on purpose to speak words of life. In Proverbs 25:13, it says trustworthy messengers refresh like snow in summer. They revive the spirit of their employer. We can revive and refresh employers, neighbors, clerks at Target, friends, extended family members. We can revive and refresh them simply by carefully choosing words of life. And then to take it even a step farther— God says, you know what, I don't want you to just speak well of them. I want you even to believe well of them. In 1 Corinthians 13, 7, it tells us that love is ever ready to believe the best of every person. And with all of this as sort of a foundation for us, let's turn to James' second key idea and discover what God's word has to say about judging others. Go back to the family meeting, if you will, and pick up in verse 13. Of 11 of chapter 4. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother, speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's one lawgiver who's able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Here's the thing. In recent years, in mainstream culture, and even within the church— there's this ideology or this thought, this message that's being conveyed that says, "Don't judge me. You're not the judge of me." Hmm? And because of this pervasive um, message or influence into our culture, it's become easy for us to sort of consider judging a taboo subject. You gotta avoid the whole thing entirely. Hmm. To be, du- excuse me, to be deemed like judgmental is on a par with being deemed a sexist or deemed racist, super, super negative. But one reason for this is that the words judge not in Matthew chapter 7 have been taken largely out of context. There was a picture that recently made its rounds on social media, and perhaps you've seen it. But it was basically the passage, Matthew 7, 1 through 6. 6, And the words judge not are circled, and the rest of the passage is sharpied out, completely scribbled upon. This is an illustration of the way many people are reading their Bibles. It's the intent of making it say what they want it to say instead of understanding what it really does say. And probably most people, most people in general, whether they're Christian or not, they know that Jesus said, judge not. But you see, the problem is they don't read on to fully understand what his point was. And the point of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 7, 1 through 6, is that he forbids us from operating with a spirit of fault-finding that overlooks our own shortcomings. He forbids us to assume the role of the supreme judge and determine what's up with someone's sin, the sins of other people. He explains, listen, before you can remove a speck from someone else's eye, it's right for you to examine the log that's in your own. In other words, the standard that we use in judging or criticizing or condemning others is the standard by which we will be judged and criticized and condemned. So going back to these phrases and this attitude that we're hearing all over the place, don't judge me, who do you think you are to judge me? I, wanna, I want to just call it what it is. Truthfully, these phrases and this ideology is really just about self-empowering entitlements. It's about justifying or condoning whatever person feels like they want to do. They're sassy rebuttals, They're sassy rebuttals of correction. They're they're means of refusing to accept responsibility for poor choices and for sin. That's the bottom line. They're evidence of not wanting to be held accountable to the law, to the word of God. Now, this topic of judging is smattered all throughout the Bible. And as is the case with many biblical principles, the enemy has quietly perverted God's truth. And therefore, people everywhere have become confused. They misunderstand what it really means to judge. And my prayer today is that this lesson will help clear this up for everyone. James is not saying that it is inappropriate at all to criticize a wrongdoing. He's not saying that it's inappropriate to express a concern or to share an opinion. He's not telling the family to look away from sin or to sugarcoat it. Sin is sin and wrong is wrong. And it's imperative that we, as children of God, use wisdom and good judgment to make healthy, righteous decisions. Think of it. If your daughter or, say, a best friend met a man who said he loved her, you would encourage her to use wisdom. You'd expect that she would use discernment to determine whether to be in close relationship with this person. And if his actions and his choices did not align with the words that came out of his mouth, they didn't demonstrate the, um, the love that he confessed, then you would counsel her to back up and avoid going any further with this person. The Lord expects us to judge this way. He expects us to exercise discernment and make value judgments regarding sin and other people so that we can avoid sin ourselves. There are times we simply must speak out against behaviors that defy God and that corrupt society, in particular when those behaviors weasel themselves into the church. God wants us to identify false teaching. He wants us to understand when things are being conveyed that are inconsistent with Bible truth. This is His desire. Additionally, the Lord expects us to judge how a person's character measures up against His holy word. This will help us to avoid associating with people who lack integrity and could, in fact, influence us to obey the Father. You've heard this said. It's in our Bibles. Evil company corrupts good character. God in no way wants his children to be corrupted. In fact, there is a passage that is not on your handout, but make a note of this. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. It tells us that it is our responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning, not those outside the church. You see, they don't know any better. But inside the church, we've learned the truth. We're to distance ourselves from people, anyone who's claiming to be a believer and yet indulging in sexual sin, in cheating, drunkenness, and idolatry. This separation is not meant to be punitive, and it certainly is not an exercise of not loving someone. On the contrary, This is intended to reinforce God's high moral standards. It's intended to bring about a desire for repentance and to help people heed his voice and ultimately be free from the bonds of sin. That's God's heart. Understand that even here at River Valley Church, before someone can work and go kids, there is a background check done. There is a certain element of integrity that is expected before somebody can have that honor to work with our children or to be put in a spot of leadership, as, a, as even a table leader, or as a deacon, or, or something like that. All of this judging is deemed right and necessary by the Father. Now, it doesn't become our primary mission in life to keep our judging lenses on or what have you. Our primary focus as followers of Jesus is to be doers of his word. Amen? Now, while all this judging that we've looked at thus far is for us to do, James tells us here that there is judging we are to avoid doing. The judging that he tells us to avoid in verses 11 and 12 speaks to condemning. It speaks to determining the guilt of someone or, say, deciding their eternal destiny. The judging that James tells us to avoid doing refers to drawing conclusions about a person's motives it refers to drawing conclusions about what's, mo- what's motivating her and what's going on inside of her heart. All of that is God's responsibility. And we can prove it out by looking at Jeremiah 17.10. God speaks here through the prophet Jeremiah and he says, But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. I give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserve. And in 1 Kings 8:39 Solomon is praying, he's dedicating the temple, and he says to God, "Forgive and act and give to every man according to his ways, whose heart you know, for you and you only know the hearts of all of the children of men." Jesus says to the Pharisees in Luke 16:15, "You are the ones who declare yourselves just and upright before men, but God knows your hearts." We have to be so careful in this area, not to judge the hearts of people. There's one lawgiver, one Lord, and he has the authority to save and to destroy. The Father has committed this judging to Jesus. It is for him. There's one more thing I want to mention with regard to just misconstruing the idea of judging. As members of this family of God, we are entrusted by him to protect unity And to foster healthy communication. And like every family, God's family is made up of imperfect people. (laughs) Amen. That means there's always potential for difficulty, for challenges, for conflicts, and so on. And sometimes we can become so hyper-intent on honoring someone, so hyper-intent on not wanting to be thought of as critical or judgmental, that it actually silences us. And so the issue that should be addressed lays in darkness and is not addressed. But see, speaking words that are laced with love and discipline and honesty and wisdom, all of, the, all of, all of those words will, will serve to foster, foster spiritual maturity. They'll serve to bring about victory for the body of Christ. So what's the secret? The secret is for you and I to be spirit-led, to be led by his Holy Spirit alive in us, to have the courage to engage in difficult conversations by speaking the truth in love. Ephesians 4.15 tells us to let our lives lovingly express truth in all things, speaking truly, dealing truly, living truly. We must learn to heed the conviction of the Holy Spirit on the inside of us. He'll tell us whether to keep our mouths quiet and to make it a matter of prayer or to Trust him with the right words to say to bring up a difficult topic. So if you find yourself in the midst of a difficult situation, I want to encourage you to begin by examining your own heart. Put it before the Lord. Avail yourself to his correction. It's possible that that's all the matter will require. Pray. Ask him, Father, I need your perspective. I need to see these people in this situation through your lens. Don't cower in fear should he inspire you and stir you to bring up a difficult thing. You don't have to worry that you're being inappropriate or out of order. You're not coming with your guns ablazing and in judgment and criticism, okay? When hearts are right, when hearts are right and free of evil motives, wonderful blessing can come forth. God can do mighty things in the lives of his people. There's much to be gained through that. So a key takeaway from this part of our family meeting is that God wants his children to be doers of his word, not doers of his job. Okay? And thus far in this passage, we see that it's God's job to sit as supreme judge. It's God's job to recognize the heart condition of his people. And it's also God's, God's job to make plans, which brings us to the third key idea. In verses 13 through 16, we read this Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. All right, how many of you, like me, enjoy making a list and crossing things off the list? Hmm? Good, lots of us in the room. Mm -hmm. But see, while it can feel really good to strike those items off the list, if we're honest, we'd know that it can also serve to foster a little bit of pride and sometimes a lot of frustration. Let me share. Okay, a long time ago... What do they say in Star Wars? In a galaxy far away or something? (laughs) Uh, Shortly after giving my life to Jesus, I quit my teaching job and I stayed home with our baby Noah's almost 24 years ago. And every day, I would make a list of the things that I felt I needed to do. And I tried really hard to get them done. But with no experience being a mom, I had really no idea how little control I would have (laughs) over my days. I had not one clue that, in fact, so many unexpected distractions could happen to a woman who wasn't working. (laughs) It's like, what? On any given day, baby Noah would require extra diaper changes or need some additional help because he had an asthma bout or, you know, just forgot to take his nap that day or what have you. And we had a yellow lab at the time who was very energetic and she would make my life a lot of fun as well. I'd open the door to let her out and she'd go barreling down through the cul-de-sac and around the block and sometimes end up literally in the house of a another neighbor three doors down. Now, of course, then I had to add to my list, put baby in stroller, go find the dog, because then you can cross that off the list, right, when the unexpected (laughs) happens? But at any rate, on plenty of occasions, the things that I put on my list at 7.30 in the morning remained on the list at 5 o'clock when Keith would get home. Most days, dinner wasn't close to being ready, and it became quite a season of frustration, but also discovery. And while I could go on and on all day about the things that I learned in that season, I will tell you that probably the most important thing was that it's really important to invite the Lord into the plans of the day. Partner with Him. Here's the thing God is not opposed to us making plans, but He is opposed to us making plans without consulting Him. Because not consulting Him presumes that we are in charge. It carries the notion that we are in full control of our lives and our circumstances. And by making our lists and determining what we think we need to do every day, or on a bigger scale, our lives as they will pan out for the next 50 years, right? All of this discounts and discards what God has planned for us. And what's more, on the rare occasion that you actually get the items off the list, then guess who gets all of the praise? Well, we do. So in living this way, it really kind of becomes all about us, which is proving here what James is telling us about arrogant boasting. In verse 16, he may have said, Now while you make your plans apart from God, you're boasting in your arrogance. Yuck. So how can we avoid this? Jesus says in John chapter 15, Dwell in me and I will dwell in you. Live in me, and I will live in you. I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide vitally united to me. What we do is we learn to live as those who stay connected to him, like a branch stays connected to its vine, drawing strength, drawing wisdom, every bit that we need to sustain is coming from Him. We tune in to His small voice, His still, quiet, gentle voice. We heed His words. We allow Him to direct our steps. We ask Him to help us with every decision. We make it part of our early morning routine to prayerfully consider what God would put on our list. It's not complicated. It's really not difficult. In fact, we could do it right now. We could do it right now. We don't need a little prayer closet and a candle glowing. We can do this right now, I wanna do this. Will you do this with me? Okay, let's close our eyes. Father, we thank you, God, that you are always available. You're always available, Lord. We quiet our hearts right now and we lift up what remains of this day. We thank you for what we've experienced so far. And there's a lot left, Father, and we have things, responsibilities or expectations, God, but we submit them to you. Will you delete what you want deleted? Father, will you add what you want added? If there's someone that you'd like us to bless, Lord, will you bring her to heart and mind right now? If there's a task that you have an anointing for us to do, show it to us, Father, We submit our plans to you. We want your plans to prevail. Thank you, God. We love you. We trust you. Thank you, Father. Amen, amen. You've probably heard the expression, want to make God laugh? Tell him your plans, right? This is a common thing. James cautions us, listen, don't get ahead of God. Don't make your plan and then quick ask God's approval on it or his blessing. This is out of order. He is the one who has plans for us. We know Jeremiah 29, 11. Lots of you have it hanging on the wall of your home. He knows the plans he has for us. And they're what kind of plans? They're good plans. It's his job to make the plans. So what's left for us is what? To just partner with him and trust him as he brings them to pass. Now this requires keeping a proper perspective. And if it's okay, or even if it's not, I'm going to meddle a little bit. Let's talk petty annoyances and how they can taint our perspective those little petty annoyances, and maybe it is the toddler who doesn't seem to be getting the knack of potty training. Or maybe it's the pile of laundry that you folded four days ago and you're waiting until your husband will put it in his drawers. Or maybe it's the lady at work who has bad breath or maybe it's the slow traffic in getting to, to, to church this morning. I don't know. But there's petty annoyances that are serving to trip us up. Anyone would ask, why? Should these things really have the capacity to steal our peace? Proper perspective says, on the grand scheme of life, that one particular issue really doesn't matter. And you know what? When you can remember that, there's a lot of joy that comes. You might even laugh in the moment. Hallelujah. This is what James is getting at in James verse, uh, sorry, verse 14 when he says that our lives are like a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. It's like this. Hey, everybody, in the expanse of all eternity, your time on this planet is very, very brief. It's likened to a vapor, You're here, and then you're not. So why in the world do we let a list bog us down? Why do we feel that we should micromanage every detail of our lives and be hypersensitive and our fingers into everything, wanting to control it all? When it's all said and done, and I will tell you that time flies, does it not And that moment of all being said and done is going to come fast enough. We're going to realize we were never supposed to be in control of anything, but rather we were intended to trust the one who is in control. Proverbs 3 5 and 6 Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, He'll direct your path. We all want the fulfilling life that stems from total commitment to his plan. Jesus taught the disciples to pray, didn't he? Father, your will be done. Let's be like Jesus. Let's make our plans, but only with God's help. And then even then, let's hold them loosely. I want to share with you, a few years ago, our son Sam, our second son, went off to college, and about two weeks into the semester, he texted me, Mom, I have something I really want to talk to you about. Can you come see me? And so I went up to North Central, and we sat in a park, and he began to share, and he wept as he talked. It was really dear to him, what he had to say. And basically, he was explaining that he felt God had shown him a plan and given him insight into the future And when he finished, he said, Mom, what do you think? I want your advice. What's your counsel? And I said, well, Sam, here's the thing. The Bible does not specifically address anything close to what you've just said. You know, think about this. The Bible doesn't talk about where someone should go to college. It doesn't specify who he or she is going to marry or what kind of job they should get. And I said, in that case, we consider what Colossians tells us about allowing the Spirit to rule in our heart, and the peace of God to rule in our heart as an umpire. And so I said, Samuel, if this, I had this bracelet on, which is why I brought it today. I said, if this bracelet represents what you've just told me, you've heard from the Lord, you've seen in prayer what you believe he is saying to you, it's beautiful. But now what you do with that is you hold it before him, fully extended, hand open, and you prayerfully continue to water it and and observe it and partner with God. You don't clutch it and grip it in such a way that the gentleman that he is has no access to it. You You relinquish it to him and hold it in front of him, trusting that he will continue to unveil the plan or perhaps tweak the plan. And he accepted what I said. We had a wonderful conversation. I'm I will share with you that the plan that he thought God had shown him has changed, and it's for Samuel's good and for God's glory. But I'm not sure that I could say that today if his, if his grip had been like this. So as the Lord reveals his plan to you, my friends, I wanna encourage you to hold it before him loosely, to continue to prayerfully um, allow him to speak to you and tweak it and direct it as you continue walking with him. So this family meeting as it comes to a close I have a question for you. Would you agree that it's God's desire for us to acknowledge our total dependence on him? Yes. And would you agree that it's his desire for us to pursue his will above everything else? Yes. Okay? So yes, we've agreed. Then his final sentence of this chapter James makes a statement that proves that now we are accountable to it. Therefore, Verse 17 says, To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. You see, sin can be classified generally in two categories. One is the sin of commission, which means we commit it. We actively do what is evil. There are sins of omission as well, which is tied to the word omit. It's when we fail to do what we know God has asked and told us to do. So we've all just agreed that it is God's will for us to submit and to partner with him in his plan coming to pass. So in knowing this, if we continue to make our own plan with no regard to him, then James is saying that's sinful. May today be a day of committing to God's plan. May today be a day of humbly placing our trust in him and allowing his will to be done in our lives. Amen? Let me pray for you. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. God, you are over all, and you're so good to us, Lord. We love being your daughters. Thank you, Father, that we are members of your family. Thank you, Father, that we are your children. God, I pray that you help each one of us to be doers of your word and not doers of your job. Lord, remind us, draw that fine line. Remind us that it's your job to judge hearts and to condemn. Holy Spirit, we invite you. Help us, Lord, to live aligned with your word by using wisdom and making judgments regarding sin so that we can live the lives that you intend for us to live. We release control of our futures to you. Day by day, Lord, we want to partner with you. Show us, God, how to abide. Show us, God, how to partner with you in planning every moment, every hour, every day, forever and ever. We love you. We trust you, God. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen.